2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. First, let's pray together. Father God, we do pray for the outpouring of your Spirit. Father, apart from the illumination of your Spirit, we grope in the darkness. We cannot understand your Word apart from the power of your Spirit. So pour it out on this congregation now that we might see your beauty and your majesty, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might give glory to Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a well-known, very large church in the south that has 5,000 souls come through three services every Lord's Day. 15,000 people every single Lord's Day. The youth ministry there is huge. It is what feeds the growth of this particular church, yet it feels like a nightclub. This youth ministry is a large ballroom, It's very dark. There are concert lights well-placed in all the right areas. There's a concert stage in the middle where there's a band playing. And kids are moshing all around it. This is really happening. It seems like a metal concert. And they say that it is the hottest gig in town. Literally, all the local bands audition for this gig. They go there with the hope that they will be discovered and make a name for themselves. These are the people leading the music worship of the so-called people of God. It is an intentional imported, worldly design where the godless are really meant to lead the godly, if that's even possible. Should this be happening in the church? There is no doubt that it is a recipe for numerical growth, but can it in any way really honor the Lord? Well, I think the Lord has much to say about this through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, that the blending between believers and unbelievers in worship of the true God are completely and totally incompatible. In fact, they are opposed to each other. And the mixing of the world with the church is a grave mistake because it does not lead to life, but it leads to darkness and condemnation. And that brings us to our verse for this evening, which you heard from this morning's sermon, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read our passage together, and we'll examine the implications that it has for us in living out the sum total of our Christian lives together in Christian practice. So if you haven't already, please turn to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verse 14, and I'm going to read through verse 16, um, the first half of verse 16. So follow along, please. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I think the main point of 2 Corinthians 6.14, where he's saying that believers should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is that the church must remain distinct and separate from the world. It's the main point. The church must remain distinct and separate for the world. And to get there, we're going to look at two points out of the text. Our first point is to be yoked with unbelievers in Christian practice is forbidden. To be yoked with unbelievers in Christian practice is forbidden. And by, and by Christian practice, I mean anything that has to do with Christian ministry, the church, the scriptures, your doctrine, your obedience, your worship, the sum total of your Christian life. I think this is the key issue that Paul is getting at. And yoking is a very helpful image to drive home the point. It is borrowed Old Testament imagery. The idea is having a yoke or a harness where two animals are paired together for the purpose of plowing a field. Usually we're talking about two oxen. When you yoke together two oxen in a harness, it becomes an incredible farming innovation. This is the most common application. They were meant for it. They work together. They create something that apart from themselves and in and of themselves wouldn't be possible. Now imagine instead of two oxen, you pair an ox with a donkey in the same harness. Now your harness is unequally yoked. And you've got a problem because oxen and donkey are two very different animals. They have different purposes, different characteristics, different qualities. And this is a big problem because when you try to plow your field, what happens is you veer off. It becomes a very difficult, if not impossible, task. This should remind us of Deuteronomy 22.10. God says, you shall not plow with an ox and donkey together. Why is that in my Bible? It's there because, poof, it should make you pop. 2 Corinthians 6.14. That's why it's there. You could plow day and night with an unequally yoked harness with an oxy and a donkey, and guess what? You are never going to get a plowed field. It is an act of utter Futility, just as it is when believers are partnered together with unbelievers in Christian practice. And this is what the Apostle Paul has primarily in his mind when he made this command to the church in Corinth. Second Corinthians is really the third letter. It's really the third letter that we know of to the church in Corinth from Paul. There was an actual second letter that was lost. It was lost, but we know it existed because he speaks of it in the scriptures. The second letter was very painful. It was a severe letter. 
It was very personal. And Paul was calling the church in Corinth to repent in this lost letter from the sin of following these so-called super apostles who were the false teachers who had infiltrated the church in a smear campaign to really delegitimize Paul's apostleship. That's what's, that's what's happening here. And so this letter that we have today known as 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to their response of repentance. He writes this lost letter. He puts it into the hand of Titus. Titus goes down to Corinth, and they are cut to the heart in broken repentance. Titus goes back to Macedonia. He finds Paul, and Paul is overjoyed, and he writes 2 Corinthians, which is in the canon today. And all that to say that I think that the unbelievers that are in the forefront of Paul's mind when he penned 2 Corinthians 6.14 are these false teachers who sought to undermine him. The Corinthians had yoked themselves to unbelieving false teachers in the church. In their Christianity, this happened. This is the kind of religious and spiritual compromise that leads to doctrinal decay and ultimately the destruction of souls. Paul is saying, don't do that in living the Christian life and expect to get the outcomes of faithfulness and the reward of eternal life any more than a farmer who has an ox and a donkey in the same plow should expect a plowed field. Everyone's going to go hungry. Now, Pastor Jeremiah confessed this morning that he wasn't sure about how to preach his text. I, I wasn't sure about this text either because, well, for different reasons, uh, mainly because I was importing, you know, my own understanding of how this confines marriage to two Christians. But after reading it, I found no mention of marriage in the context. So then I read the whole entire letter. There is no meaning of marriage in the whole entire letter. But while it's not explicitly mentioned, just as we saw this morning, it applies. It applies, and it bears repeating. Marriage is part of the Christian practice. It is an invention of God designed for one main purpose, that a man and a woman would put on display Christ and his bride. That is the main purpose of marriage. And if you are married to an unbeliever, it is not possible for them to participate in that. You cannot pull the dead weight of a spiritually dead person in this act of faith. So marriage is Christian. And the world does participate in it. It even seeks to redefine it, but it nevertheless is a Christian institution. So to be clear, Paul is not saying that yoking yourself with an unbeliever in marriage is just a bad idea because it will be really hard for you and your spouse, so maybe don't do it. He's not saying that. He's warning that the loss could likely be way more catastrophic than that. He's saying that you may end up shipwrecking your entire faith because it is futile. It is futile. That is our second point. To be yoked with unbelievers is futility. To be yoked with unbelievers is futility. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can pull the dead weight of your unbelieving friend and their unbelieving ways down the road of the path, the narrow. Have you ever tried to pull dead weight? It is an arduous task at best. Dead weight has a way of driving itself into the ground. There's no assistance whatsoever. But it is an impossible task when a believer is yoked with an unbeliever in Christian practice and ministry because the two are completely incompatible. We were called to run a race of faithfulness with endurance in order that we might obtain the prize of eternal life. But when you partner wrongly with unbelievers in Christian practice and Christian life, you veer off the path. You veer off the path. And people who veer off the path don't finish the race. They don't finish the race. It's not like your unequally yoked partnership means, oh, I may just finish last, or I didn't come in the first. It means you don't finish at all because it's totally futile. You risk shipwrecking your faith. And why is it so futile? What makes it so impossible? Look again in our verse, in the second half of our verse, after the command to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now these two questions are the first of five rhetorical questions that Paul peppers us after giving the command in order to drive home the point. If you felt the sobriety of this morning's sermon, it's because this is a sober command. Paul wants you to feel the weight of it in the deepest place of your soul. Now, verse 14 speaks of partnership. Partnership, which has to do with finding common ground. So we, we may have partnerships in business with unbelievers. That's okay. Paul's not saying you can't have an unbelieving employer. He's not saying you can't have an unbelieving business partner. This command is not addressing our dealings with the world. With work or education or business partnerships or social clubs, our evangelism, God knows and expects us to do these things. So to be clear, Paul is talking about partnership with the world in our distinctive Christian enterprise. There can be common ground in business enterprise, that's fine, but Christian enterprise is off limits because righteousness and lawlessness are opposed to each other and have no common ground. That's the point of the second half of verse 14. You cannot expect good, eternal kingdom outcomes when you make the church look more like the world just to make your unbelieving friends more comfortable with you and your Jesus. Why is that? Because lawlessness hates God. Lawlessness opposes God's kingdom. And the church, therefore, must be distinctively separate from it. The lawless will be removed. The lawless, the lawless will be removed by, by Jesus himself. He will remove them. Who are we to invite them back in? Again, coming back to 
verse 14, when light attempts to fellowship with darkness, the gospel is blurred. It is distorted. In fact, I would argue that when you mix darkness with light in this sense, you no longer have light. That's what Paul means here. When you mix darkness and light, you no longer have true light, so you no longer have a true gospel. So the stakes are high, as high as they could possibly be. The gospel is at stake. There's an all-out war for all things that matter to us as Christians when we start blending in our Christian faith with how the world works and what the world believes. So that said, one final piece to the warning as we close this evening. Paul says later in the letter that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He's talking about the super apostles. And that means that Satan's favorite enterprise is religion. Satan and his minions seek to disrupt the kingdom of God through religious activity disguised as angels of light. Mormonism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, easy believism, all of the religions are satanic enterprise owned and operated by satanic forces disguised as angels of light. That's sobering. Coming back to the super apostles, I believe they were in the forefront, again, in Paul's mind when he penned this command. Satan's greatest trick is to infiltrate the church of God. I mean, these other false religions are one thing, but boy, when you get inside the true church of God, that is a covert operation of the most sinister kind. And that's why false teachers are so dangerous. False teachers are so dangerous. And perhaps, maybe the most dangerous kind is the false teacher masquerading as a pastor. As a pastor. Tim Challies wrote in his blog, in an article that I came across, and I quote, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors, end quote. The fertility of the church led by a false teaching pastor is the height of satanic accomplishment. Not only should we not be inviting this into the church, but we simply can't allow it. It must be forbidden. It must not happen under our watch because it is utterly profane. So it should be confronted, not celebrated. People who are guilty of this should not be congratulated They should be disciplined. The church must remain separate and distinct from the world. That is the main purpose, the main point of 2 Corinthians 6.14 because there is no agreement between Christ and Satan, only hostility and enmity. So we must adhere and obey this command at all costs as if our lives depend on it because it does. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise that Christ is crowned with the victor's crown. 
that we can find shelter under his wings. Father, make us diligent. Keep our hearts humble, trusting in you and relying on you, fed by scripture, that our eyes may be open and that we may be faithful in the warfare that you have us in, that we may protect the beauty and sanctity of your bride, the church. For Christ's name we say, we pray, amen.